Welcome to episode 210 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Our guest today is David Sanger, who's the national security correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, uh, and joining us for the news roundup, a great panel. Uh, uh, Maury Shank is here in person in studio instead of uh, uh, across uh, the Atlantic. Uh, Maury, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. Uh, ben Wittes is here. Uh, Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies uh, uh, at the Brookings Institution, and uh, Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare in uh, martial arts. Hey. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Nicholas Weaver, uh, senior researcher at the uh, International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley and a lecturer in the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. Welcome. Nick uh, Nick is um, trying out a Skype connection with us as we try to move our uh, uh, audio uh, quality into the 21st century. Hi, Nick. Hello. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to practice law at Steptoe more times than any other lawyer. Uh, let's jump right in. Uh, the encryption debate is warming up again. It never really cooled off completely. Uh, uh, the left keeps declaring victory and then having to discover that it didn't uh, quite uh, shut the FBI up, and uh, uh, Director Ray has raised uh, uh, the idea of, uh, of a solution to uh, uh, commercial encryption again. Um, I, I thought the probably most interesting part of this debate, and uh, there was a good piece by, is it Alan Rosen, Rosenstein? Pronounced Rosenstein, but Rosenstein, of course, where the, you know, the, the H is silent. Uh, okay, uh, very nice piece in Lawfare, uh, uh, talking about how finally uh, the left has had to give up on the argument that this is just, you know, uh, a violation of ma- principles of math to ask for uh, a law enforcement access. Uh, it hasn't quite given up, but uh, it, it, people who are arguing in good faith can't say that anymore. Um, and that's mainly the result of this National Academy of Sciences report, uh, um, which featured participation from the likes of Ernie Brickell, who was uh, Intel's uh, security uh, uh, guru, uh, uh, Ray Ozzi, who did the same for Microsoft, uh, and uh, Stefan Savage, who I don't know as well, all of whom said, you know, you can do this. Um, and well, so, okay, I, 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 tell me where I'm wrong, Nick. First of all, it's in a very limited context. So that's for device encryption, encryption at rest. And so the idea is is the the seized cell phone model and the like. And first of all, there's still a lot of worries among everybody else that you'd screw up the engineering. But more importantly, that already limits the um, threat window considerably, that this is a much easier problem than backdooring communication. So backdooring communication is much harder 
And yet, then, so uh, let me th- stop you there. I think I think you're right. They 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 talked about this mostly in the context which uh, where a- Apple made it famous, which is uh, can you get into an iPhone? Uh, um, and the answer is yeah. If uh, uh, Apple were willing to make some design choices, you could find a way to securely create a, uh, um, a, a law enforcement access. Wouldn't be perfectly secure, but the iPhone is not perfectly secure now. However, and I was pleased to see that the report gives gives great deal of credit to the argument I've made, which is, uh, come on, you're already updating the software. There's a hole in it already, uh, uh, and so don't tell me you're a virgin. This is just a question of how often you want to do it. Um, updating the software, they've been making that less scary, um, specifically against some cases. Um but it's really hard to get right on the details. In many ways, the, the problem is not just that you'd have to give the U.S. government access, but you'd have to give access to other perhaps less responsible governments on the same terms. Um, I really like the idea of being able to hand iPhones to Americans visiting China and not have to worry about them getting mugged for it. So, um, so you, you, these are fair points. These are these are hard policy issues, but it's it's these are not policy issues that are resolved by shouting pound math. Uh, yes, agreed. Uh, um, so let me let me let me ask about real time communications because you you point out they are very different problems um but i i wonder if um uh, the fact that most real time communications that real people use today are already being uh, uh broken uh, despite tls uh, um it is irresponsible for any enterprise to allow communications, encrypted pipes to be set up inside their network, running all the way outside their network, no matter where they're going, because uh, you don't know what's coming in and you don't know what's going out of your network. Uh, and so a company after company has said, we're breaking that uh, that pipe uh, and inspecting the contents, including all the contents of our employees' communications. Uh, uh, that may not be ideal, uh, but it happens today for reasons that are actually related to security. But it's very clear that that is actually within institutional consent and institutional boundaries. Whenever we've tried to do general access communication backdoors, it has been a disaster. We are still picking up the damage from 20 years ago with the reduced key length RSA and Diffie-Hellman problems. Yeah, I, I, I grant you that uh, the reduced key length was not exactly a, uh, uh, a scalpel approach to the problem. Uh, it, it, the uh, scalpel would have been the clipper chip, uh, and, and I will say the other hobby horse that I'm uh, uh, pleased to ride that the uh, uh, National Academy report 
uh, uh, validates is every time the press reports on clipper chip, they uh, credit Matt Blaze with having found a flaw in uh, the clipper chip, and they sell it as though, see, this never works. Uh, what he found, and the uh, report says this, is uh, – a method by which somebody who was using the clipper chip could potentially defeat the escrow feature. Um, you had to you had to do a lot to do that, uh, and at that point you might as well just go out and buy uh, unescrowed encryption. Um, a, but uh, the implication that it can't possibly be done is fed by that miscitation of uh, Blaze's research. Well, it's not exactly a miscitation. It's more the observation that the only way to know that a backdoor works is to check the backdoor. And unless you have a backdoor that's using a really creative public key system, it's really hard to do that. All right. Well, uh Nick, um, there was some good news in the security uh, uh, world, uh, uh, too. Uh, they caught the, the, the guy behind Carbonock, which is like the most um, effective criminal uh, 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 cyber espionage and cyber attack and cyber theft uh, uh, ring. Uh, and uh, they managed, uh, the U.S. government managed to extradite uh, uh, Yevgeny uh, Nikolin from Czechoslovakia, where the Russians had been trying to bring him back to uh, uh, to Russia. Um, is this, uh, are these two movements as big a deal as they seem like? I think so, that getting Russian cyber criminals under U.S. law is really useful. And getting the notion that if you're a Russian cyber crook, you cannot leave Sochi um, is really useful. Um, I don't know more details on the Karabank uh, arrest. Who? I wasn't able to find out who the guy was. Yeah, they just uh, was he a- yeah, he, uh, they, he was busted in Spain, uh, uh, but I don't have a lot of details on who they actually uh, uh, have. Uh, uh, but the Spanish seem pretty convinced that he's the guy behind the attack, the the, the brains behind it. Which is good, because that was a really damaging group, because they were the ones doing the ATM jackpotting. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, it was like a billion dollars uh, that they managed to extract, apparently, which is a staggering uh, uh, number. Uh, um, you know, I remember the Europol, uh, the head of Europol, uh, or at least uh, the Europol cyber uh, uh, unit, uh, saying that what's really surprising, there's probably only 200 uh, real designers, technically capable designers behind most cybercrime. Uh, and he said, and if you can, if you can, if you could bust those 200 people, well, you'd solve the cybercrime problem that we have. Uh, uh, so this is, you know, one half of 1% at least of the, uh, of the problem down. <laughs> that make, does not make it sound like a big deal, Stuart. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. It makes uh, it sound like a low replacement cost. Uh, uh, ben is right. Uh, um, okay. Uh, 
Uh, well, here's something that's, that probably is a big deal. The um, Customs and Border Protection has uh, said they're going to ask everybody who wants a visa to come to the United States. Now, this is not visa waiver uh, and all the people who are filling out ESTAs, but practically everybody else is going to have to provide five years of social media um, uh, names. They're not giving away passwords, but they're basically going to give the U.S. government an ability to go looking for all of their public posts as part of the screening process of letting people into the country, at least in theory. Now, in practice, they can't do all of them, but uh, uh, I would have thought that this would have produced a pretty bad reaction overseas. So, um, Maury, what's, what's your sense? Well, you know, you say it's not for ESTA. Uh, I, my wife is British. Mm-hmm. And she recently applied for a new ESTA, and it's a option. That request, it's an option. That's right. It's already an option on ESTA. So the um, State Department has been going this direction, adding it as mandatory for immigrant and non-immigrant visa applications is obviously a further step. I think y- you mentioned public posts. I wonder what um, the government is going to ask from the likes of Facebook about being able to have a friend's view once you know, will the government get a friend's view of everybody? And I think that's the direction we're heading. I, I, I'm pretty confident that um, the social media uh, will, at a minimum, demand subpoenas uh, for that and for content search warrants. Um, but I'm not sure they can, you know, if if it's possible, and I think it is, for ICE to get a subpoena saying we're trying to investigate this person before we let them into the country and we'd like you to cough up their uh, uh, their account information, yeah, I think you probably could do that uh, without asking for the password. We, we know Facebook, at least from the recent Cambridge Analytica brouhaha, isn't that tough about giving up friends' information. So I agree with you, some kind of process is going to be required, but it's going to... It's going to be an interesting. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how much. Well, how how dumb would we feel if somebody came here who had been tweeting his determination to get revenge for, you know, a U.S. intervention in Syria for a year, and we just let him in because he didn't have a, a, a criminal record? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, I'm would- more. I'm more pri- – uh, I'll let you go, Nick, but I'll just say I'm more privacy inclined than you, Stuart, but it's hard to see um, how we're going to get away for, for these purposes in the current security environment, at least looking at uh, public posts. But it, it does seem very invasive for privacy. It's, it's a tough question. So I'm also confused in, in it about, you know, a pr- so presumably it is not privacy invasive to the extent that people like me – uh, use as their social media handles their names, uh, like at Benjamin Wittes. I mean, if, if. When I, I Google know. you, your Twitter account comes right. up third. So, so I think that, 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 that's of zero privacy consequence to ask me to, to fill that out. It's another way of saying, you know, what is your name really Benjamin Wittes, right? Um, but to the extent that people tweet anonymously or engage social media anonymously, it does seem to me a little bit like, uh, asking people to identify their authorship of all the anonymous pamphlets that they've ever written. And while the foreigner abroad doesn't have First Amendment rights, uh, that is something you couldn't ask of an American. And I, I do think the issue there may be 
less privacy than it is a kind of First Amendment value to the extent we actually believe in anonymous speech. And that we think that, uh, uh, well, and it, it, the that the First Amendment protects foreigners uh, as opposed to us being able to read foreign tweets that are undeterred by the prospect of having to identify the uh, author. Right. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't. I don't think it's actually a First Amendment issue because the First Amendment is, you know, doesn't apply to foreigners overseas. But I do think there is a free speech value at issue, which is, you know, are, is it really your position as the U.S. federal government that, as a condition of visiting the United States, you give up your right of anonymous speech? And I think that's that. That's a. A, a, an interesting proposition that you know you can argue the pros and cons of, but I'm to me the concern sounds a little bit less in privacy than it does in 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 kind of free speech values. Nick, also the the security side, the death to America tweeter is not going to tell you that account. He's going to tell you his benign account. So what it's going to pick up is somebody going off on, say, hypothetically a uh, president with a bad haircut. And that really starts to implicate American values as opposed to security. So if I could, um, could, I, could I stop you there? I think you're right. Uh, uh, but if there's ever a justification for serving a subpoena on the social media, it would be one that says, do your records show that this person have, has other accounts that they're not telling us about? How do you determine that? Oh, I think uh, I, I think most of these social media uh, uh, analyses can show that there are ties between uh, accounts, and that's how they shut down people who try to open new accounts uh, uh, a, a, after having been shut down on the other. Um, so it, it, they have tools that would allow them, in many cases, to say, yeah, we think these are the same people. I agree with um, Nick and Ben that it's about values. It's not about the law. I mean, there's a there's a long-standing principle that at the border there's absolute discretion of the customs agents to ask for whatever they want to ask for. This certainly doesn't go beyond that, and there's no First Amendment right, as you pointed out, Ben. So. Uh, you know, it's a question of values versus security, really. Well, having been on the receiving end of uh, a lot of anonymous uh, Twitter speech, uh, I, they can't get rid of it fast enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, speaking of things we can't get rid of fast enough, Julian Assange. <laughs> uh, uh, Ecuador has said, you know, after years of letting him uh, uh, live in their uh, uh, embassy, uh, that they're going to cut off his Internet access because he has violated the terms of the agreement with them. Uh, um, and uh, Matt Green, who I don't always agree with, uh, uh, tweeted that uh, uh, what people should do, and I'm sure GCHQ would volunteer to do this, is to stand outside the Ecuador uh, embassy with a Wi-Fi signal that says free Wi-Fi for Julian Assange that allows you to to connect but never actually gives you internet connection. We've all been there in the in, in, a, in an airport or two. Uh, uh, but yes, it would just drive him nuts, or maybe they should just kind of give him intermittent 
access. So, um, ben, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, let me let me ask Nick if if he has a uh, a more merciful view of Julian Assange's access problems. <laughs> You think I'm merciful to Mr. Rapey in the embassy? I'm one of the people who keeps pointing out that, no, he's not there because the U.S. was going to extradite him. He was there because Sweden wanted him on sexual assault charges, and he was too much of a coward to face him. Well, Ben, maybe you want to stick up for him. No. um, (laughs) So I, I do want to point out that there's actually no reason that I can discern for him still to be hiding in the embassy. Uh, the Swedish sexual assault charges have been dropped. We know of no other outstanding warrants against Julian Assange. Uh, the best that I can tell is he's hanging out in that embassy because he feels like it. And I'm, like, not really sure why that's supposed to tug at my heartstrings. Squatting. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> sort of like, um, you know. There actually is. There's a British bail jumping charge that... Well, he'd come out, get a slap on the wrist, and go on with his life. Okay, so, so, right, so he'd have to do 30 days or whatever. Um, and, you know, then he could have all the internet he wanted, but he wouldn't be a fugitive, uh, refugee hiding from the big bad Swedish sex crimes prosecutors in an embassy. Uh, and I, I think that's just has a little bit less cachet. Um, I don't really understand why we're still – I mean, the only thing that I can think of, honestly, is that he knows he's committed, maybe, uh, is aware that he has exposure in other jurisdictions. And so he's assuming that there could be, uh, you know, consequences for him if he uh, shows his face in, in, a, in, in public. And, you know, for that, I'm saying, okay, well – Maybe he doesn't, you know, if if you're in that position and you don't get Internet access as a consequence, maybe that's uh, a, a, a natural consequence of your choice to evade the uh, international justice system. So let me ask you, as a as a deep student of the Mueller uh, legal proceedings, is the Mueller conspiracy theory uh, to... Uh, uh, deny the United States government uh, the services and capabilities that the law permits it. Uh, does that pose a threat for Julian Assange? It certainly potentially does in the sense that, um, well, so according to Bob Mueller, uh, people who were knowingly involved in the social media component of the IRA, and this is the Uh, not the Irish Republican Army IRA, the other IRA, the Internet Research Agency, Uh, people who were knowingly engaged in that activity were engaged in a conspiracy to deprive the United States of its uh, proper regulatory jurisdiction, both under the campaign laws and under, uh, you know, Justice Department, FARA sort of stuff. Um, And similarly... One can hypothesize that people who were, and I'm making these facts up now, so, so, you know, understand that this is very hypothetical. Anyone who was involved in, say, 
uh, hacking and transmitting information from the DNC, John Podesta or, uh, uh, you know, other domestic sources and then feeding that information into such a uh, um, social media campaign would potentially have exposure. Now, what was WikiLeaks's role in that? There was certainly some dissemination, uh, a lot of dissemination of uh, purloined uh, emails. And so could that, uh, you know, what additional facts would you need in order to tie that into the the uh, uh, IRA conspiracy, significant additional facts, but not the not additional facts that it strains credulity to imagine are are sitting either in Bob Mueller's pocket or well within his reach. Would you, do you disagree with no, that? No, I, I think that's right. I, you know, one more reason, Julian, to just stay where you are. Uh, uh, I think there's one other. Yeah. Um, so there's also the Vault 7 and the SIGINT summaries. And that might be pushing past the line of journalism and onto some real potential espionage liability. So spell that out, Nick. Um, so how did the, both the Vault 7 data and the um, the NSA SIGINT summaries get to WikiLeaks. We have not had public answers about that, which makes it very suspicious that there might at least be at least some possibility that Julian Assange was involved in the acquisition, in which case then there's really, it's not quite the, the Pentagon Papers type First Amendment defense, at least it's colorable enough that you could imagine a grand jury um, indictment exists on that. All right. Well, look, I, I look forward to returning to Julian's uh, legal troubles uh, for years. Um, uh, one last thing that I want to cover, uh, and we can do it quickly, is a, a brief sack dance. The password manager company, Keeper, which brought a lawsuit against Dan Gooden and uh, uh, Ars Technica for pretty accurately reporting uh, that they had serious security problems. Uh, uh, they have been, they were countersued and they have now announced by Twitter that they're dropping the lawsuit. Uh, um, uh, is there anything to mourn about that, uh, Nick? Uh, no, it's just a great testament to the power of the California anti-slap law, which has real teeth, that if uh, Keeper lost that anti-slap motion, they'd have to pay for uh, Gooden's attorney's costs. Nick, should people be, like, say, me, be using Keeper? No way. Any security company that reacts that way to uh, security disclosures deserves to get boycotted in the industry. I'm personally a fan of 1Password, but there are others just not Keeper. Yeah, it's it's a loser, right? Uh, for sure. Uh, the, the one thing I think is worth thinking about is whether somebody, Peter Thiel, we're talking about you, should... Um, fund an organization that will say, when you find yourself in this situation and you bring an anti-slap suit, of course you just want to end the 
bleeding for your, from your attorney's fees. But why don't you just assign us your anti-slap damages claim and we'll litigate from here. Um, Actually, it's, it's easy. California anti-slap law allows a pro bono attorney to collect attorney's fees. All right. So, um, if you if you get a libel suit of this kind, uh, call me and call Nick, and he'll be your expert witness, and uh, I'll be your <laughs> pro bono attorney. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Maury, Ben, uh, 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 Nick. This is terrific. Uh, uh, we're going to move on to our interview with David Sanger, who's the national security correspondent for the New York Times. Uh, uh, David, it's a pleasure to have you here. Great to be back with you. And I understand that you are working on a book that we're going to see in three or four months. You uh, will. And I hope you're going to come back and tell us what's in it then. I, I hope you'll see it in um, early summer. It's called The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Made made for you, Stuart. Yeah, yeah that, right. I guess it, that does sound terrific. Uh, uh, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stories you've written uh, uh, earlier, right? uh, because I, you know we have some big news weeks and didn't get to spend as much time on them as I thought we should. And the, the one that really bothered me is your story about uh, uh, the Russians having deeply compromised some uh, uh, American power grid uh, um, uh, software and hardware in ways that look to be designed not to steal secrets but to cause pain, uh, uh, to cause a, a meltdown uh, in uh, our uh, power grid. Uh, um, you wrote that with Nicole Perroth. Uh, how serious is this? Well, it's pretty serious, but it's also been around for a while. I mean, one of the fascinating things about these um, cases where you discover that the infrastructure has been ridden with implants is that uh, those implants could have been there for many years. And I don't think that there was anything that got revealed um, by the Department of Homeland Security here that they hadn't known about in some form or another for a while. So then the interesting question is, um, why is it that uh, these came out now, right? So um, number one is we seem to be in sort of an anti-Russia move uh, moment, as you, as you can see. Oh, yes. Uh, so uh, that, could have, that could have been it. As we mentioned in the story, American intelligence agencies have known about this for at least a year and a half, and there were um, – some fairly urgent warnings to the utility companies that were issued last June. So this really came about largely because the Trump administration had decided finally to impose some sanctions against um, some Russians uh, for the election meddling. And then this came along as part of the same package. Okay. Meaning... Uh, presumably that there was an NSC meeting at which people said, yes, we're going to announce this, and here's how it's going to go, uh, how it's going to go, and someone from DHS said, and shouldn't we talk about the uh, grid intrusions as well? Well, there are a couple ways to interpret this. One is, sure, let's talk about the grid uh, incursions and impose sanctions for that. Second if you're at the White House and you're trying to convince the boss that you're not just sanctioning them just for the election meddling that he's yes. questioned uh, whether it actually has happened, you can say, well, boss, 
we're getting them for a whole bunch of things. So it's some election meddling, but look at this cyber attack on our utility and power plants, something that you warned about during the campaign. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Okay, so, so it, it, it appeals to the president. It, it, it may, and it certainly helps, you know, take a little sting out of the thought of uh, just going after the Russians to sanction them for a series of activities that the president maintained during the campaign didn't happen. So let me ask this, though. Can, can you tell from your reporting, are we in a position where if the Russians wanted to take down a substantial part of our grid, they could? And for how long? Well, they certainly could take down parts of it. Uh, the question of how long depends on answers that I haven't been able to get out of the utility companies about how their resilience is built in. And, you know, in some ways, we are protected in our utilities for the same reason that we were protected in our election machines, which is diversity. that uh, there's a lot of diversity. Uh, every utility does it a little bit differently. Some are online. Some are offline. Some are in various states of being able to go back and do manual switches to get back on and so forth. Some have invested very heavily in cybersecurity. Yep. Some have pretended to have invested in cybersecurity. So uh, it's all over the map, and you won't know until it all happens. But, you know, one early glimpse at the, uh, uh, at the forthcoming book, when uh, the concern took was underway and under debate in the Obama White House about whether or not uh, the Russians might be able to hack the actual election machines, and they did all these studies of that action. Uh, one fairly prominent member of the intelligence community stepped up and said, why go to the bother of hacking the machines when you could just turn out the power in different parts of the country and throw the voting into chaos because there'll be no lights on and, you know, mm-hmm. early November in polling places and early morning and the evening and the traffic lights are out and getting there's a mess and public transportation can't run. I mean, why go to all the trouble of dealing with these machines? Interesting. Yeah, well, of course, because there'd be a lot more attention uh, paid to that event. Uh, it, uh, but you'd spend time trying to figure out was this just a power That's outage true. because someone screwed up and there's a power outage? And no one would trust the winner to, to come to the right conclusion. That's right. Uh, well, fair enough. Uh, uh, maybe maybe there is – well, let me ask, uh, you know, um, Vladimir Putin um, seems to delight – in saying, is that a red line? Because I can cross it. I can. I'll, I'll be glad to step across it. Uh, I, and is is uh, is there really a red line here about uh, uh, going after U.S. power grids? He's done it in Ukraine. He certainly has done it in Ukraine, and uh, a good deal of the a good chapter of the book that is uh, coming takes you into the Ukraine hack and what lessons the U.S. learned from it and what lessons they failed to learn from it. And, you know, I think one of the things that's fairly clear about Putin's cyber activity over the past um, few years, if you take Ukraine and you add in all the other activity against the other Baltic states and what's happened in Europe and certainly what happened here in the election, is that there's been almost no pushback. 
And uh, so when the hacks took place of the White House and the State Department and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the U.S. didn't even name them because they said, you know, we do espionage, they do espionage and all that. It was only the election hack that brought them to some some greater element. And now you're beginning to see some pushback. But do this comparison. So two weeks ago, the Russians, or we believe it's the Russians, end up using a industrial size, or I should say military size chemical weapon against a... Um, uh, a, a double agent who has since been pardoned is living in the nice little town of Salisbury and he's in very critical condition. His daughter's getting a little bit better. And because of this um, chemical weapons attack that we all easily understood uh, against a Russian person living in exile in Britain and his daughter, horrific attack, they managed to get 24 countries together to actually do a joint sanction against the Russians. So that's a really good thing. Right. But we had hacks on the American election system, the French, the Germans, uh, you know, long series of Russian-related hacks in the Baltics that affected vastly more people, right? The NotPetya attack in right. Ukraine. Did you see 24 countries get together about that? No. I somehow missed it. Yeah. I, I, so what's it, that it was, tell you? It's everybody else's problem. That's right. So what's that tell you? It tells you that for something we're, you know, we think we're so savvy about this new nature of low-level, mid-level cyber conflict. And yet one single but very easily understandable attack that has uh, images of World War One to it, gets a larger response than something that is sort of harder for everybody to get there. Well, part of it is, of course, they couldn't have done it without spies in Britain. That's right. Uh, whereas the cyber attacks they can do from St. Petersburg. Although when we did throw out 60 yeah, we did. Russians here, and when the uh, British threw out theirs, if you looked deeply into the statements, they say that they believe they were responsible as well for some of the cyber attacks. Now, whether you can believe that or not, I don't know. So uh, I, I, I do think that what we're seeing here is that uh, um, Putin gets psychic income out of crossing our red lines without uh, paying much of a penalty. Mm -hmm. And he gets political points at home for thumbing his nose at American and Western power in ways that are just barely deniable. And this attack, uh, like the little green men, like uh, interfering in the election, is part of saying you cannot ignore me uh, because I can put a stick in your spokes anytime I want. And when he does it uh, and denies it, everybody in Russia says, yeah, yeah, that's our guy. Um, a, and I, I don't know that it's particularly effective at a strategic level, um, but it uh, clearly is working for him politically and it seems likely he's going to keep doing it until we find a way to bring pain that he can't take anymore. Well, I think that's exactly right. And uh, this is the conundrum of being a nuclear superpower. Nuclear weapons bring you a certain degree of respect 
but they don't give you a lot of latitude. I mean, there's kind of an on-off switch. You know, you're either going to use your nuclear weapons or you're going to keep them in storage, and you might threaten to use them as happened at various terrifying moments in the Cold War. But by and large, they're not a terribly useful weapon. Cyber weapons are the exact opposite. You can use them every day. You can dial them up. You can dial them down. And uh, that's why they're so incredibly uh, attractive to Vladimir Putin, same reason they're attractive to the Iranians and to the North Koreans and, frankly, to U.S. Cyber Command, right? Deniable, uh, number one, cheap, number two. In Putin's case, cheap, number three, right? <laughs> Guys out of money. Uh, and And you can actually leave an impression – and leave the question, well, what worse can they do to me? So um, I was struck by the fact that uh, uh, when the Soviets shot down a, an American uh, um, plane with a number of military officers on board, uh, Eisenhower is reputed to have issued a uh, confidential order to the CIA to kill exactly as many Russian officers of equivalent rank, however they wanted to do it. Um, a, which is a, sends a message that at least the intelligence officers and the military officers of uh, uh, the opposing service ought to get. Um, is that an option here? Right? Is should uh, should the uh, should um, MI5 go take out Anna Chapman in Russia? Um. I doubt Julian, this is another reason to stay in the embassy. Yeah. Uh, I doubt that you would see, certainly in the case of a chemical weapons kind of. No, you could. Uh, I, I doubt lead, lead poisoning would work. Would, would work as well. You might see that. I I suspect from everything that I've heard from the British and from the Americans that they don't want to get into a tit for tat here because first of all they think it lowers them to uh, the level of behavior that they're trying to get international condemnation of. But secondly, I think they're concerned, and this is certainly the case in the cyber arena, more so even than in the example that you provided, of escalation dominance. You know, one of the big problems that we face in the United States, Britain's got this as well, most of Europe has got this, is that because we live in the big glass house, uh, we think that the Russians have, and not just the Russians, more opportunities to escalate in cyber uh, warfare with us than we may have with them. Now, I'm not sure that that's right, but it's certainly the fear. Well, that's that's and, a deterrence doctrine. And it just that, works against us. That's right. And And in fact, if you go back and look, and I've been doing this for the book purposes, at why we have been so hesitant in the past to go use cyber weapons at various moments. It's because somebody asked the and then what question and you can't figure out how you get off this this um, uh, escalation ladder. Now, you could argue, and I think I would argue, we've actually let that paralyze us a yeah. bit too much and that we have kept from doing things that might have established a greater sense of deterrence. But the fact of the matter is, 
you never know how high the escalation ladder is going to go until you're already on it. So we are totally deterred, not just by the Russians, but by the Iranians and increasingly by the North Koreans from taking action because of their ability to do the same kind of thing. Um, I can't help observing that we are more dependent on our uh, uh, IT infrastructure now than we were five years ago when somebody first raised this idea, uh, and we will be more so five years from now. Sure. Um, and the only thing that's going to stop us from continuing to double down on this vulnerability is if we see just how vulnerable we are. So wouldn't we be better if we uh, if if escalation occurs? Wouldn't we be better for it to occur now than five years from now? Well, I mean, this is part of the argument of those people who have said you won't get serious about this till we've had our own cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber 9-11, pick your, your disaster. But you're right. We are going to seem more vulnerable five years from now than we do today because we're going to have a world of autonomous vehicles and wondering, you know, when a horrific crash takes place like the two that we've seen yeah. in uh, the past uh, week, both involving deaths. In neither case did anybody go in and suggest, well, maybe it was hackers. Maybe that somebody had hacked in. Elon right? Musk will get there. Don't yeah, worry. That's right. <laughs> but um, you know, supposing you're asking that question five years from now. Yeah. I, I, so the, the, the question I asked, which uh, was certainly provocative, is the kind of question that people are expecting uh, John Bolton to ask when he becomes the uh, uh, national security advisor in, a, in just a few days now. Um, you've written on this as well. Uh, I don't actually know him, but I saw his uh, proliferation uh, security initiative, and uh, I thought it was a remarkable and brilliant uh, end around some of the problems that he had identified with the uh, previous uh, non-proliferation agreements. Um, And so... I'm kind of hopeful that he might actually be able to find ways to respond to what he has pretty clearly defined as a lack of will um, that don't have the disadvantages of, uh, you know, endless escalation to our disadvantage uh, uh, that you've pointed out. Uh, um, But he certainly has a bad press. Um, What's your sense about the validity of the criticisms that he's a crazy right-winger or um, abusive in the bureaucratic process? Well, let's um, break your your questions on Bolton into its component parts. So first of all, the Proliferation Security Initiative was, no matter what you think of John Bolton up or down, was a very well-designed, well-executed idea that was so well designed and so well executed that in fact the Obama administration sort of adopted it in yeah. its first in its first term. Now it kind of let it wither in the second term, and I think they probably wish now that they had not. What was it? It was uh, taking a series of uh, UN resolutions that put sanctions on uh, North Korean uh, ships and using that to interdict shipments, usually in port so that they could go to a country that was refueling a North Korean ship and say, here's a UN Security Council resolution prohibiting this kind of of cargo. We have intelligence to believe this kind of cargo was on this ship. 
And then they start picking things apart, and they found all kinds of things. They found arms for Cuba, you know, buried underneath sacks of sugar. They found uh, uh, arms that were aimed for Sudan. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, you know, sort of seriously interrupts uh, the North Koreans. And there was an effort by the administration last year during the North Korean missile test to try to actually increase that by uh, winning an approval to, from the U.N. to do interceptions at sea, mm-hmm. which would mean that the Navy could hail a North Korean ship. Now, again, you've got escalation issues back to this. What happens if they do it? The North Koreans take a shot, we take a shot back, and you're into something. The U.N. did not approve that. But that's sort of one of the things that's sort of hanging out as sort of a, a next and step. And we have, you know, if they use flags of convenience, we now have shipboarding agreements with a bunch of the countries that would be obvious flags of convenience. So uh, they really have to go as North Korean ships in order that's to right. deter us. And, and let's remember some other things that have been done that could be vigorously uh, 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 reinforced in the North Korean case. Um the Japanese at one point, I used to live in Japan when I was bureau chief for the Times, the Japanese at one point decided that North Korean ships needed to be inspected to meet Japanese safety standards. Uh-huh. Now, <laughs> tell me a North Korean ship at port in Japan that could, our ships couldn't meet Japanese safety standards. Oh, of course not. No, none of our cars do. <laughs> right? So um, that's like, that's a really good way to keep them tied up for many a month. You're sitting there writing tickets and repair orders and yep. all that. And, uh, you know, it's that, that, that would really slow them down. Um, uh, insurance. This is something that worked against the... Um, Iranians, when uh, there were sanctions being put on to try to bring them to the negotiating table. And the way that worked was getting um, Lloyds of London and others to stop issuing insurance for Iranian uh, oil cargo uh, ships. And then when they entered a port, you can't enter a port without, without insurance. ship insurance, right? <laughs> That's great because because they they, they essentially said uh, if the Iranians are going to fight, you're going to lose your cargo, you're going to lose your ship. You don't want to insure that. That's right. That's right. So uh, and they say if you get into into oil uh, trade with them, you could end up in violation of UN sanctions that were in place at that time. This is before the Iran nuclear deal. And that was very effective. It kept a lot of Iranian ships sort of bobbing out at sea, unable to go in and deliver their mm-hmm. goods. These things all worked in the Iranian case. Now, I'm not sure they would all necessarily work in the North Korean case. It's a very different example. North Korea has already got nuclear weapons. Iran uh, obviously did not. Um, but this was a good sort of Bolton initiative. It now, was. let's go to the rest of your Bolton yeah. question. Okay. So um, – he has usually opted for a military solution over a diplomatic one. It's hard to find many Republicans around Washington today who will tell you that going into the Iraq war was a fine idea. Right. And that he would go do it again under the same circumstances. Yeah, but you know, look, he, Hillary Clinton was a supporter of the Iraq war. She so. wasn't a, a supporter of the Iraq war, but she's one who has come around to reconsider it. Donald Trump was a supporter of the Iraq War who came around to question it. John Bolton has at least been consistent. Right. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, on the Iran deal, he has been a very persistent critic. There's nothing wrong with that. But he hasn't explained to us 
what you would do the day after you got out of it. Right. And in the North Korean case, he has said that his idea of a good summit with Kim Jong-un is to send the president in, issue him uh, an ultimatum, uh, basically give them some FedEx boxes to put their entire uh, nuclear program into and mail it to the nuclear labs in Tennessee and leave. So, you know, all of those are decent opening moves. They are saying, I am not going to accept the status quo. The question is, what do you do afterwards? And I wonder if PSI, which is the one thing we saw him build after rejecting, you know, these massive non-proliferation treaty agreements that never work uh, and take forever and have all kinds of uh, uh, consequences that, that you don't anticipate, uh, uh, he built something that was better than that. And so I just wonder if when challenged to find a solution as opposed to articulate a critique, which he's very good at, uh, whether there isn't some reason to hope that he actually will construct uh, solutions that uh, that work better than the stuff that he's been criticizing for so long. I think there is some reason to hope uh, for that. We haven't seen much of that in his role as a pundit. Right. And at the UN, he didn't have to actually provide that. And when he was assistant secretary for uh, arms issues at the State Department, he rarely had to go uh, do that. And then the third issue you asked was, can he, uh, is he basically going to be extraordinarily demanding? Is he going to be shouting and screaming? Or is he going to be doing what national security advisors are paid to go do, which is develop consensus among the competing parts of the U.S. government, the Defense Department, the State Department, the intelligence agencies, who all... All, all those munchkins. All yeah. those munchkins, right, who hate to be, who hate to be uh, corralled together. Um, so far, there is nothing in his history we have seen that has suggested that he would follow the Brent Scowcroft model which is considered the sort of ideal of how you bring all of those together. On the other hand... An an ideal that has probably been uh, missed by at least half of the national security advisors. Probably more, right. On the other hand, the national security advisor is supposed to be a reflection of what the president wants his national security council to look like. Mm -hmm. And the oddity of this president is that he has picked three national security advisors who have all been wildly different. So you had um, uh, the, the first national security advisor, who lasted a mere uh, 24 uh, days, right, who was a former head of the um, Defense Intelligence Agency and who ultimately has now uh, pled guilty. Uh, you had a second national security advisor who was essentially a historian, who had some very impressive battle um, uh, uh, experience uh, in Iraq. Uh, I think that one of the appeals... fundamentally a man of the establishment. A man of the establishment. I think one of the appeals of H.R. McMaster to the president was that he was a general. The president said to me during some of the foreign policy interviews that we did, I, you know, I like generals. I, I think they're, you know, decisive. They show strength. What he didn't like was the way this general briefed him. Right. Okay. And now he has chosen in John Bolton somebody who was not a general, who is way far to the, outside the establishment view. But no further than Flynn. No 
further than Mike. Well, we don't know what Mike Flynn's full idea. One thing you can say about John Bolton is we know how he feels about a number of issues because he's written broadly on them. Right. Mike Flynn didn't had not written very broadly on them. They share some views on Iran, but I'm not sure I could tell you what else they share views on. Really interesting question about Bolton. He's been a Russia hawk from the start. Right. That's going to be an interesting moment with. Well, we have a, we, and that that was true of McMaster as well. Uh, yes. who was speaking again for the establishment. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I I I think that's right. Uh, this is going to be an opportunity that it. McMaster, I think, always thought that one of his jobs was to to say no to the president, or at least to say not yet. Uh, and uh, I would expect with Bolton. Um, certainly when the president's instructions line up with his policy preferences, uh, he's going to be say, he's going to say in a New York minute, sir, uh, and make the, uh, 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 the rest of the interagency comply. So this is why you should go back and read, if you haven't seen it already, the New York Times Magazine cover from this past weekend, which was about Jim Mattis. And the headline is Last Man Standing. Yes, I saw that. Yes. And uh, so Mattis is sort of the last one who would sort of say, Mr. President, there's an alternative to military action here. Mr. President, we've done this before, and it hasn't worked out as well as you might think. Mr. President, I know that sounds simple, but it has the following second and third and fourth order effects. And the really interesting question is, can Jim Mattis and John Bolton learn to live with each other? I think that is that is really for sure the question. Now, although I would put Mom, Mike Pompeo in that mix as well. Uh, uh, he may turn out to be one of the long line of secretaries of state who's more enthusiastic about military action than, than the Defense Department, but uh, he's going to be a player. Oh, he will certainly be a player. Whether he will have that sort of, Mr. President, I'd back away from this. I mean, think about the North Korea problem. Mike Pompeo has spent the past 14 months looking at every program we've ever had to slow down the North Koreans, including the cyber program against their missiles that I wrote about last year. Um, I'm not sure his first thoughts about North Korea are necessarily going to be, how do we reconstruct a diplomatic process here that might actually work as opposed to the ones we've had before. Well, unless unless all the other alternatives are less appealing. Uh, uh, David, this has been a terrific, wide-ranging, uh, well beyond cyber law, but uh, what the heck. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here, and we are all looking forward to your book. Uh, can we pre-order it now? You know, that's a really good question. I'll have to go look and see if we can, but it's going to be out in June, and you'll have plenty of opportunities uh, once we... Uh, once we actually get the last of the copy for it written. Which oh, is yes, uh, which I am happening just this week. preventing you from doing <laughs> as we speak. Uh, uh, we're looking forward to it, and we're looking forward to having you back in June. Thanks to David Sanger. Thanks to Maury Shank, Ben Wittes, Nick Weaver. This has been Episode 210 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, remember, the Cyberlaw Podcast is looking for a part-time intern for, in our Washington office uh, to help put together the podcast. Uh, so if you're interested and a and take a look at uh, the Steptoe.com careers website. Uh, uh, and we're going to put a link to the announcement on the podcast uh, show notes page. So uh, look for it there as well uh, so that you don't have to wander around our uh, very nice um, uh, Steptoe.com uh, website looking for it. Uh, and if you want to suggest a guest uh, and they join us, we'll send you a highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mug. Just send those suggestions. 
suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, in future episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.